Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Hello, I'm PJ Matthews from the School of English, Drama and Film at University College Dublin. Welcome to this UCD ScholarCast. The following lecture in the series The Art of Popular Culture from the Meeting of the Waters to Riverdance will be given by Eddie Holt, who lectures in the School of Communications at Dublin City University. Yeats' Journalism and the Revival I suspect most people find it difficult to think of William Butler Yeats as a journalist. The description doesn't seem to fit. His image is, after all, that of the ultimate literary man, because for him, literature was a form of religion. He said as much in his autobiographies. Even his appearance, that cape and pince-nez image, although sometimes the augmentation was a huge fur coat, which... Seamus Heaney in Finder's Keepers has called the great fur coat of attitude, seems at odds with the popular image of journalists. I think Yeats himself and literary critics, prizing poetry above all else, are largely responsible for our reluctance or inability to think of him as a journalist at all. But Yeats wrote a lot of journalism, more than 400,000 words of it, which is about five average-sized literary novels, such as you might see judged during the Booker Prize, or indeed five PhD theses. So Yeats almost wrote a full short list of Booker Prize winning novels. Journalism therefore accounts for more than 40% of his total published output, omitting his letters which were only published because he became so famous. He wrote in all for about 70 publications. I've counted 71, and he's known to have written for two others, the Gale, the first magazine of the GAA, and the Manchester Courier, for whom he wrote literary gossip, although no copies have since been found. Those 70-plus publications included newspapers, magazines and journals. He wrote journalism between 1886, when he was 21, and 1938, when he was 73, a few months before he died in January 1939. That figure of 70-plus publications can be misleading. It's not as though Yeats wrote an average of 5,000 or 6,000 words for each publication. Many of them were ones off or more likely two or three pieces. In fact, more than 40% of his journalism was written for just five publications. In all, he wrote about 250 contributions, although a few, and they are few, have never been recovered. For instance, Oscar Wilde told Yeats that writing literary gossip was no job for a gentleman, so he quit being the literary keen edge of the 1880s. His most frequent outlet was The Bookman, which, as the name implies, was a literary magazine, a British one. 
His other most popular outlets in order were United Ireland, the feisty nationalist Parnell paper, the Dublin Daily Express, which was the most unionist of Dublin's dailies, the Boston Pilot, staunchly Catholic, edited by the Fenian John Boyle O'Reilly. It's now the paper of Boston's Catholic Archdiocese and the United Irishman, Arthur Griffith's Sinn Féin paper, founded in 1899. Yeats wrote journalism for Irish, British, American and French publications. His Irish and British contributions are quite even, more than 100 pieces for each. His American articles number about 40. He didn't speak French, but Maud Gonne translated or had translated two of his contributions for inclusion in Leerland Libre. He was much more political in Irish publications, whereas in British outlets he mostly confined himself to literary matters. In America, he regularly lambasted London, the centre of critical orthodoxy, trying to persuade American readers, and presumably Irish ones too, not to tug the forelock to British tastes. Over the years, he wrote for papers and magazines which are still with us. The Observer, The Times, The Irish Times, The Spectator and The Evening Herald. He wrote too for publications which have gone, The Dublin Evening Mail, The Listener, The Irish Statesman and others. He also of course wrote for and edited the Irish literary theatre journals Beltana and Samhain. Yeats began writing journalism for the Irish Fireside. Four of his first five pieces were for it. The Fireside appeared first in 1883 and was a supplement of The Weekly Freeman. The Jesuit, Stephen Brown's 1937 book, The Press in Ireland, describes the Irish Fireside as consisting largely of snippets about everything under the sun and a few good articles about serious subjects. Yeats then, like Joyce, who was first published in the Irish Homestead, George Russell's, or A.E.'s, journal for Horace Plunkett's Irish Agriculture Organisation Society, began his writing career in a modest publication. Joyce, seeing his immortal prose appearing beside the week's manure prices, promptly called the homestead the pig's paper. Hilarious to a certain mentality, no doubt. It appears as if Joyce inherited the snobbery of his foolish father. The most intense period of Yeats' journalism career was in the 19th century. In his 14 years writing up until 1900, he produced more than he did during his 38 years in the 20th. His first 10 years, his 20s, were the busiest of all, although there was little let up throughout his 30s. After that, he was better established as a poet and had, since age 32, Augusta Gregory as a patron. And though he continued to write occasional journalism, about 80% of it was done by the time he reached 40. That's just the background to fill people in on the extent of Yeats' journalism. However, even though it may seem surprising, it certainly did to me, that this archetypal literary figure should have written so much for newspapers and the periodical press, it's not really when you examine it. If you look first at his milieu, the people he mixed with, Even leaving aside for the moment the time in which he lived, Yeats' involvement with journalism is not all that surprising. Really, his involvement came at a time when print journalism was the media, the golden era of print journalism before radio, 
later television, later still the internet, is generally estimated to have occurred between the 1880s and the 1930s. Remember too that Yeats' early mentor was the ex-Fenian John O'Leary, commemorated in September 1913 by the couplet Romantic Ireland's Dead and Gone, it's with O'Leary in the grave. O'Leary had been jailed and exiled chiefly for his writings in the Fenian newspaper, The Irish People. In both London and Dublin, Yeats knew many journalists. In London, for instance, William Henley, Elkin Matthews, William Morris, Thomas Rolleston and Henry Sparling were among people who called to the Yeats home in Bedford Park, Chiswick. In the Rhymers Club, too, many of Yeats' London friends, Arthur Simmons, Ernest Radford, John Davidson, Edward Garnett, Lionel Johnson and Ernest Dowson, among others, acted as a kind of reviewing cartel and exerted decisive influences in a number of publications. Yeats did so with the bookman and in his letters occasionally offers to review books for his friends. In Dublin, he was friendly with Douglas Hyde, George Russell, Frank Fay and others. He also had print spats with journalists such as D.P. Moran, Arthur Griffith, Charles Gavin Duffy and even Patrick Pearce. Even Yeats' journalism-loathing father, John, who railed against his son's reviewing and his painter brother, Jack, supplemented their incomes by painting illustrations for magazines. John Yeats was a barrister who felt that the law was no way for a gentleman to make a living. He believed that law, like journalism, was merely the work of the intellect and therefore injurious to fuller creation using the imagination. He was afraid journalism would stunt Yeats' growth as a poet. Nonetheless, W.B. Yeats followed the advice of his mentor, John O'Leary. He understood that the hot metal typefaces of the press were the best way to forge an impression on what he called the soft wax, which was his impression of Revival Ireland. His specific aims are reasonably well understood too. He wanted to make himself and his work known. He wanted to create a public receptive to the high-class literature he wished to write. And of course, he wanted to found a literary movement. In a letter to the editor of United Ireland in December 1894, he wrote... If we are ever to have an Irish reading public, we must have an Irish criticism to tell it what to read and what to avoid. This is not a matter in any sense for the authors, but for the journalists, editors and newspaper owners of Ireland. If good criticism is written in Irish newspapers, it will carry its due weight with authors and public alike. It is, I believe, pretty clear what he's using journalism to achieve. He also, because he was poor, with a notoriously feckless father, made a little money from journalism. It was very little, really. His letters show him waiting to get paid and looking for a rise. It's the typical life of a young freelancer. Until he became an established poet, he couldn't command the highest fees. This is a fact of literary journalism that remains with us today, I suppose. But in writing for Irish, British and American publications, continually stressing the need for Irish literature and Irish criticism to unhook itself from London-centred prejudice, he was pleading at the bar of international opinion for a separate Irishness. 
It was cultural decolonization, and that, of course, was central to the revival. Journalism also made Yeats familiar with wordcraft and rhythm. It was prose, not poetry, but it's crucial to remember that, as today, far more people read, if they were reading at all, journalism than read poetry. It was perhaps one of the reasons why he famously said late in life, When I was young, my muse was old. Now I'm old, my muse is young. Alternately, of course, that last statement may be a self-justification for his trysts with younger women when he was 65 years and more. It is important to remember that, as George Boyce observed, the literary revival was not one that embraced or even interested the mass of Irish people, Catholic or Protestant. Yeats was using the technology of the time, print journalism, to persuade people. It's rather like televangelists using TV in the 1980s to persuade people to follow them. Print journalism is, in fairness, generally less propagandistic, but then again, poetry too carries its weight of propaganda in terms of subject, treatment and mood. Interpretation is invariably an act of propaganda. The most important point to remember is that far more people, then as now, read newspapers and magazines than read imaginative literature. Yeats knew how important it was to keep in touch with an audience. This makes him different from contemporary continental modernist artists who railed against journalism and made their art deliberately more complex to keep it secure from the democratising masses. The rabble spit forth their bile and called the results a newspaper, said Frederick Nietzsche. The Continentals mostly agreed, but the Irish revivalists, realising the power of post-famine journalism, did not. Indeed, there's an argument that post-famine journalism, because of technological developments in printing, because of the completion of the railways linking most Irish towns, and this in turn uniting the country like never before, played a frequently underestimated part on the road to 1916. There is a larger context to continental intellectuals engaging with the press anyway, but modernists simply didn't. Before I move on to suggest what the effects of all this journalism had on Yeats, as well as on the revival, I should point out that Yeats complained regularly and bitterly about journalism and journalists. For instance, in letters to Catherine Tynan between 1888, that was the year of Jack the Ripper in London, which changed journalism forever and has given us crime, crime, crime. Between 1888 and 1891, he says, I hate journalists. There is nothing in them but jeering, tittering emptiness, especially the successful ones. Journalism interests me more dimly than poetry. Mere ephemeral journalism. So, by the mid-1890s, he was talking about his attempts to escape from journalism. This came in the form of a small book deal, which represented about six months' work. Journalism wasn't ever an end for Yeats. I would not suggest that. It did have a propaganda function, so too, of course, did much of his poetry. Certainly, it wasn't intended to be the liturgy of his new sacred literature, but it was there to support that and make it possible. One aspect of Yeats' journalism that fascinates me is this. In his autobiographies, or memoirs, he barely makes mention of it. It's as if he were trying to write journalism out of his life. 
This is especially strange, seeing as he dedicates his autobiographies to those few people, mainly personal friends, who have read all that I have written. Yes, his collected letters are full of references to journalism in the first and busiest ten years. He refers to journalism more than 100 times, often multiple mentions within single letters. You can see that he's excited, anxious, scheming, praising, condemning, all these emotions. So it's obvious he held charged views on the subject. This ignoring or repression of journalism in his memoirs and practical obsession with it in private correspondence is telling, I believe. It's possible to suggest a number of reasons for this glaring disparity between the public and the private. My own sense of it is that insecurity and snobbishness persuaded him to ignore his own journalism. He was established as an artist by 1914, when he began autobiographies, and dreaded the risk, I suspect, of being regarded as a mere man of letters. In that sense, although he was different from continental modernists, it was only a matter of degree. Journalism was useful to his project. Anyway, the effects of all this journalism on our national poet. Let me remind you how Yeats' father railed against his son for doing it. But Yeats still did it. In that sense, it marks a revolt against his feckless father, who was a defining influence on him. He follows John O'Leary and not his father. Richard Ellman suggests that the Yeats family shows a dialectical progression. The Orthodox Protestant minister grandfather begets his antithesis, the utterly sceptical father, who in turn begets W.B. the poet. The poet synthesises, or fuses, some of his father's ideas, principally, and this is crucial, that the only criterion in art, as in life, is the fullness or totality of one's personality, with those of his grandfather, substituting, in line with the intellectual morality of the time, literature for religion. My own additional sense of what journalism did for Yeats, as did forcing himself into public speaking and the management of men in the theatre, is this. They provided a means, not for him to become quite a man of action, as he sometimes dreamt about, but to become a man, a person differentiated from his father. His father could never finish a painting, was ineffectual in the pragmatic world, and was, indeed, feckless. Journalism, however, made his son, despite hating the modern world and fearing the onset of the filthy modern tide, engage with the technology of his time, print. It also taught him to hit deadlines, and it furthered the dialectical progression identified by Elman. The clarion irony is that it helped Yeats to realise his father's dictum about the primary importance of the total personality. In other words, journalism's effects on Yeats were probably more dramatic than its effects on the world. It's an occupational hazard for most journalists, indeed for most careers. Michel Foucault has remarked, people know what they do. They frequently know why they do what they do. But what they don't know is what they do does. This applies to themselves as well as to others. Anyway, I would argue that the effect of Yeats' journalism contributed greatly to his dramatic effect on the world of literature. 
John Frayne, who collected and edited most of Yeats' journalism in the 1970s, maintains that journalism was one of Yeats' earliest masks. I believe that's fair to say, although it's not the entire story. Shy and introverted, Yeats sometimes thundered in print and could be quite belligerent. Attacks on Edward Dowden, Trinity College's first professor of English, on Gavin Duffy, on Professor Mahaffey, who was a provost of Trinity, on Trinity in general, make that point. Perhaps he wasn't Eamon Dunphy, but he could be Fintan O'Toole. In that sense, journalism was a mask for him. But critical stress on his searching for secret knowledge, the Hermetic Society, the Golden Dawn, the Theosophical Society, Kabbalistic lore, seances, occult magic, itself masks, I believe, the profound effects of adjusting himself through journalism to engage and cope with banal, quotidian reality. Yeats was conscious of his unconscious, generally a Jungian term, or his subconscious, which at the time was largely Freudian. Although he seems to use these interchangeably, his autobiographies has many references to both. If the production of art depends on bringing to consciousness unconscious aspects of the personality, like the mythology of a country, then the secret knowledge he sought was an attempt to access his unconscious, like myth could reveal the unconscious of a nation or race. Now, that's quite Jungian. In Freudian terms, culture is largely the product of sublimating sexual energy. Yeats remained a virgin until almost 30, so he qualifies there too. His sheer will in making himself write journalism or forcing himself, despite his shyness, into public speaking and managing a theatre company has arguably more effect on him than all the secret knowledge stuff. In that sense, the theosophy, golden doll, spiritualism, etc., are an enclosing mask. Yeats' interest in the occult is often seen as a symptom of his desire to create a mythology within which his poetry could operate in defiance of the modern world. But he also embraced the modern world, and journalism was one of his main ways throughout his 20s and 30s. Put it this way, writing journalism contributed, not as his father feared detracted from, to his internal psychological processes for producing art. It was, in ways, the writing of his anti-self that he developed and integrated to make him what he became. It's not simply the denial of modern realities which the occult helped promote that allows him succeed. It's the blend of denial plus or minus his accommodation with these realities. Maybe that's why he doesn't mention journalism in his memoirs. He was creating his own myth and his own image too. I believe these have been too readily accepted by literary scholars. Journalism also provided Yeats, of course, with the other external aspects normally attributed to it. Creating an audience, keeping him in touch and pleading Ireland's case. Remember that journalism did not require a university degree. I believe it was at least, and probably more psychologically influential, as the magic stuff that has gained so much attention. But whether such things are measurable is another matter. The old line about the graceful swan threshing away furiously under the water applies, I believe, to the nine and fifty wild swans too. Journalism was crucial in making the threshing possible, and the threshing underlies the grace. 
I don't want to suggest that the revival and the 1916 Rising which followed it came about purely because of journalism. It didn't. But journalism mattered hugely. The more romantic origin myth for the Irish state is that it came about through a rising of poets, not journalists. There were, though, only three poets involved and five journalists. Still, I think it's fair enough to stress poets. As Yeats excavated, perhaps exploited, Irish mythology, the state venerates and exploits the myth of its founding. All states do likewise. It all raises questions about masks and closing other masks, of course, and also the separation of literature and journalism, which is mostly bundled in with social sciences in universities and colleges. Yeats showed the relationship between literature and journalism. He backed off it, of course, but unlike Seamus Heaney, for instance, our living Nobel Prize-winning poet who has used academia to further his career, Yeats was left with journalism. It may be a blessing in disguise that he did not have the entry requirements for Trinity College. In a general sense, Yeats' use of journalism reflects the self-help aspects of the revival identified by P.J. Matthews, the GAA, the Gaelic League, the Irish Agriculture Organisation, Society, etc. It certainly helped Yeats to become known, but more importantly, in helping his self, it clearly contributed to Yeats becoming arguably the greatest English-language poet of the 20th century. You have been listening to Eddie Holt in a University College Dublin ScholarCast in the series The Art of Popular Culture from the Meeting of the Waters to Riverdance. A transcript of this lecture can be found at www.ucd.ie forward slash ScholarCast. Flimsy stands slowing you down? Well, it's time to upgrade. Armadillo builds durable North American-made tablet stands and kiosks. We're so confident, we offer a lifetime warranty. So elevate your business and visit armadillo.com. That's A-R-M-O-D-I-L-O.com and use code ACAST for 5% off. Armadillo, built to last, designed to impress.